You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Today's podcast is with Russ Laraway. Uh, Russ has had a diverse career. Uh, he was a company commander in the Marine Corps uh, before starting his first company, Pathfinders. From there, Russ went on to the Wharton School and then on to management roles at Google and Twitter. He co-founded Candor Inc. along with our friend, best-selling author Kim Scott. Uh, over the last several years, Russ served as the chief people officer at Qualtrics and now the chief people officer for the fast-growing venture capital firm Goodwater Capital, uh, where he's helping Goodwater uh, and its portfolio companies to empower their people to do great work and be psyched about while doing it. Um, he has a new book. It's called When They Win, You Win. Being a Great Manager is Simpler Than You Think. This is really you know, one of the top 10 or five business books I've read. Um, it's simplicity about how to manage people. It just breaks it down into really actionable, practical ways. Enjoy our conversation. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Russ Laraway, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Kelly, for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, I had this great playwriting teacher who told me that if you can't tell me what your play is in one sentence, you don't have a play. Um, and you start your book with two sentences that I think very succinctly set up what your entire book is about. You write, quote, managers are failing everywhere and no one is helping. This is a big claim, but don't worry. I brought receipts, end quote. That's it. That's what, that's what the book is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's pretty, pretty good. Although it wouldn't be much of a book if I just complained that managers are failing. So I, I think, uh, I think I did the legwork required to, to come up with some solutions too, but yeah, I think um, maybe, maybe uh, one or two more sentences. Um, 
what I'd say is um, that we absolutely don't need another person's opinion Mm -hmm. about what it takes to be a great manager. Mm -hmm. What we need is to learn to lead in a way that measurably and predictably delivers happier employees at work and better business results. And I think if, uh, I don't know, is that one sentence, Kelly? Did, were you counting? No, I, didn't say, I mean, the, the, but the reality is this is a book uh, that is uh, uh, reductive, simple. Um, we, we interviewed Lydie Klotz, who has a, a great book about subtraction and, and that we don't think in terms of less, we think in terms of more. And I think that's what you're getting at here. It's like, God, don't layer me with your, your seven-point theory that will only work in one specific context. Instead, you, you really, you say leadership is three things, direction, coaching, career. And we go from there. We, we dig into that. But, but really, by, by reducing that, I think you're actually giving a great gift to people that this doesn't have to be as hard as it seems. Yeah, I, I, actually, think, <clears throat> I actually think that the world is accidentally conspiring to confuse the average manager. I, I have this uh, fantasy. Um, and the fantasy is I get to ask leadership experts. Um, you know, th- Think of the most famous ones you can think of. And um, I get to ask them how they think their stuff helps the average manager. And uh, I get them one-on-one. You know, I, even get, I got a camera going. I'm interviewing them. You know, got some good lighting. You know how it is. It's a, it's a very detailed fantasy, Kelly. Yes. And my hunch is that they'll all use different words, but they're all going to say something like um, their stuff is one section of a buffet-style lunch line. Yeah. Right. And so the manager's moving through the lunch line with their tray. They pull a little off the, the Simon section, a little off the Russ section, maybe a little off the Kim section. You know, there's all these sections. And then as they, uh, as they exit the line, they've got a nutritious meal that, you know, is there for them to go solve all their leadership problems. Right. That's what I think. That's how I think everybody thinks their little bit of the world mm-hmm. contributes. Um, I think that that's an, that'd be a natural way for each of them to feel. They're focused on their area of expertise or their latest book or their latest article or podcast. That's right. I think the reality for the average manager, though, is it doesn't feel at all like a leisurely trip through a buffet-style lunch line. It actually feels like you're hogtied in the center of a middle school cafeteria while there's a multi-thousand-person food fight transpiring. You know, like broccoli bouncing off your head, mashed potatoes sliding down your cheek. By the way, if the manager does get through that lunch line in a leisurely fashion... They're not picking the chicken breast and spirulina and, uh, you know, and asparagus that they need. They're grabbing the cream puffs and the chocolate cake and, and the, uh, you know, chicken fried steak that they want. And so, and just sort of related to this, something you mentioned that's, uh, I get, I get pretty, pretty passionate about this one point. I also don't need to hear another person wax prosaically about the difference between leadership and management. <laughs> because, because I think what is what has happened, you know, it's like sounds cool to say at a cocktail sure. party. Like, I I think there's a difference between leadership and management. The, the reality is it doesn't matter. You apply for the job called manager. There's go try to find a job description where it says leader. Right. And it fits exactly your point, Kelly. Leadership has become the more grandiose idea. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, what's your leadership style? Like. I counted the word style appears in the book six times. Not once does it, not once does it refer to someone's leadership style. And so we've got caught up in the fancy at the expense of what works and works specifically means to me measurably and predictably delivers happier employees and better business results. So I I like the way you teed that up. Great. Um, Your career as a Marine seems so central to defining what you see 
as good management qualities. And I'm wondering if that was always the case, or did you make that realization once you were done with the service and firmly entrenched in the business world? Yeah, probably probably needed a little bit of hindsight to understand how valuable that was. But I will say this, um, our shared friend, Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor, you know, I, she's... I, She's generous with me, um, sometimes hyperbolically so. Mm -hmm. And one of her axes in radical candor is care personally. And she said many times, I don't know know if this is hyperbolic or not, but she said many times, very counterintuitively, everything she learned about the care personally axis, she learned from her former infantry marine direct report. That's me. Hmm. And I think a lot of people are confused. I think people think military leadership is what they see on TV, which is you shout at someone and they just do whatever you say. They're automatons. They don't think it's nothing like that in real life. That's boot camp. There's a, and there's a purpose to that. You got to sort of teach people how to put a team first. And, and there's some very specific ways boot camp or officer candidate school in the Marines, for example, get at that. Um, the reality is, though, day in and day out leadership in the military is actually quite similar. There's, there's some vision for your organization. You have cross-functional partners. You set some goals. You have to work with others to get them done. You want to hear from the people on your team about what they think is the best way to achieve those. This is exact. It's all exactly the same. Yeah. Um, but um, you have to realize one very different aspect of all of this, which is we are all in, a, in an organization where our, we are voluntarily putting our lives at stake. And so this care personally angle is really, um, it's different um, in, in this kind of culture. It's, it's really important for the Marines to feel like you care about them because someday you might need to make a decision that puts them in extreme harm's way. And if they know that you care about them for real, um, they're a little more likely to trust that you're, you're, you're doing that responsibly, thoughtfully, consciously uh, than you're not. So I think it's a, a pretty unique, pretty unique place. I, I'll, I'll, uh, General Lejeune, who the uh, uh, base in North Carolina is named after, a pretty famous Marine. And forgive the, the gendering of this, but he says, the relationship of officer to Marine is that of teacher to student father to son. And he said it at a time where the, the military was, but, but parent to child is fine. Yeah. Um, this, the, the quote was, was, as I said it, um, and that's, that has a tenderness to it. Doesn't it, doesn't that have a, a yeah. caring and tender side to it? I just think, I think people just, if they have no experience, which what is it? 99% of our populace doesn't when in this kind of environment, it's real hard to, to, to get underneath that. And so, yeah, I think this caring about people in the workplace thing is is one of the biggest things I brought with me from the Marines. And probably the other biggest one that I've seen missing, Kelly, is own, real ownership. Yeah, There's, there's a saying, um, you're responsible for everything your organization does or fails to do. And I, I, could, I, you know, I, I could tell you a story that really brings that home. It's a little lengthy, so it might not be appropriate here, but they really mean it. And they mean everything. And um you know, you go over into the corporate world and, and there's a lot more. It's their fault. It's not my fault. It's my person's fault. And instead of just standing up and owning the failures 100% as your own and dispensing, frankly, the credit 100% as if it's not. And so um, I think these are a couple of the big differences that have actually kind of served, served me well over the years um, since, since the Marines. Uh, which story were you thinking of? Uh, it's the Colonel Bog story. In the, tell that. Uh, I have that on my list. Yeah. I wanted you to tell that. Oh, okay, great, great. So um, 
Yeah, and I think this this emphasizes a couple things, including the extreme degree, the extreme nature of ownership, what it really looks like. So, um, yeah, I was company commander, 175 combat Marines, and um, I'd secured the Liberty, the Marines for Liberty, on Friday night. So, what that means is the Marines are off on weekends, you know, most most times, just like you and I are. Um, the only difference is before we let them go, we have to make sure we have all our serialized gear, you know, weapons and, and uh, gas masks and um, night vision goggles and all that stuff. So I get a call from the armor. We have all our stuff. This means the next step is we form the Marines up outside and in, in a real formation. I stand in front of them. I give them a safety brief um, about being careful and not getting in trouble over the weekend. I'm the last thing between them getting in their cars and heading off to Vegas to Mexico, to Los Angeles, uh, San Diego. And so um, I was into my Friday night one, one time. I'd secured the Marines hours earlier, and I got a phone call from the officer of the day, who's basically on a rotating basis. There's always somebody on duty. You know, if a, one of the Marines' family members be, you know, becomes seriously injured, there's a way to get in touch with all the Marines. Or if North Korea invades South Korea, with, you know, we have, we have to be able to react very quickly. And so there's always someone on duty. So the officer of the day was on duty, calls me, says, sir, we got a problem. What's that? Um, one of your Marines is in jail. Mm. I said, okay, what did he do? Well, he got drunk and he punched a cop. I was like, all right, it's really bad. And then I said, where is he? And he said, Mexico. It's like, man, this is right. Yeah. It's, it's way worse. Yeah. I mean, Marines are not the most well-behaved people on earth all the time. And so there's sometimes tense relationships with, uh, with the communities around the base. This one happens. One of the communities is Tijuana, you know? And so anyway, we got to go get them, you know, and this means the officer day has to disarm, can't carry, can't carry a weapon across the, you know, an international border. It's going to be a huge headache for the general in charge of the base, all of it. So Anyway, what usually happens is on, I, I spend the weekend sort of trying to gather the facts, doing a, a little bit of an investigation. And I show up Monday morning with a number of stakeholders to make a recommendation to my boss, the colonel, Colonel Boggs, who's in charge of 800 combat Marines, and about the punishment for this Marine. And he can do things like he can demote the Marine. He can suspend pay. He can put him on restriction, which means he's not allowed to leave the base for like 60 days. And given the nature of this transgression, it's we're going to recommend the max, Right. And so the normal process is Monday morning when the colonel's ready, calls me up, gathers the stakeholders. We go in, we make the recommendation. Immediately following that, the Marine comes over. The colonel runs his, it's called non-judicial punishment. He's prosecution, he's defense, he's jury judge. Um, and, um, and then it's, it's the, the Marine gets the punishments, the punishments start immediately and, and, and off we go. So I get the call to go up to the battalion headquarters that day. It's a, you know, probably a quarter mile walk or something like that. And um, I get there and it's different. No other stakeholders. Usually there's, you know, like I said, six, eight stakeholders, mm-hmm. uh, peer, you know, peers or, or senior staff, non-commissioned officers. And it's just me. And I, and so the colonel's in the room and the sergeant mate, I can hear through the door, the sergeant, the most senior enlisted guys talking to the colonel, my boss, the colonel. And he opens the door. He says, the sergeant major says, you can head on in, sir. And we, he and I were not buddies. Uh, mm-hmm. So he was, he was enjoying uh, nudging me into that room a little too much. So now I know something's up. But my first clue is nobody else is there. So anyway, Colonel usually says, come on in, have a seat. Today, he doesn't say sit down. He says, what's going on in Alpha Company? And, and that's the one, that's the infantry company I led, Alpha Company, A, B, C, D, right? Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. And um, I said, oh, 
you know, sir, I don't know what this Marine was thinking, going to Tijuana, getting drunk, punching the top. He's like, no, 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 no. What, what's going on in Alpha Company? And, and I'm realizing I'm missing the mark here. And so I said, well, the Marines are scared for their friend. You know, they, he's an otherwise good Marine and he's stepped in it big time and, and they know he's going to get hammered. And he goes, and the Colonel stopped realizing his questions weren't getting him where he wanted to go. You know, I wasn't kind of picking it up. And he said, actually, what I really want to know is why is your leadership so weak that your Marine thought it was okay to go to Tijuana, get drunk and punch a cop? Now, normal people that weren't in the Marines feel like, probably feel that's very unfair. This guy was an adult. He made his own decision. He drove there. He drank too much. This all happened, you know, brought, brought his, by the way, the reason this happened was because his fiance had her um, expensive looking engagement ring and the, the police officer was trying to bribe it off of them. And so that's kind of how this happened. That alone was a, a, a sort of a bad, bad mistake. So anyway, this feels really, this is harsh. You can't get a tougher direct challenge uh, yeah. in, the, in the infantry. I was put there for my leadership skills. He made me a company commander early because of my leadership skills. And here he was questioning him in the worst way possible. And so I felt pretty defensive. Um, I, I was looking, I, I didn't look at the man in the mirror. I was looking at everything else. And, but I had a little time to think about it. And then it hit me, my safety brief. I'd been mailing that thing in, Kelly, mm. saying the same thing every Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Marines, they, after a while, they hear what, 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 remember I'm the last thing between Vegas, LA, San Diego, those things are all better than my safety brief, you know, yeah. and, and by the way, Mexico. And so, um, and so I did something, I was a little bit opportunistic. There was a, a guy near the base who'd been a, congr- a medal of honor winner, um, who had tra- tragically, um, he's, he was wheel, wheelchair bound because of an automobile accident he had related to a D, DUI. And I asked him if he would come talk to the Marines, right? And, and I don't know if you know this, but Medal of Honor winners, they, they wear their Medal of Honor always. Mm. Um, I mean, they're allowed to take, you know, they're, he's a civilian, but it's the one award you're allowed to always have on you, even right. when you're a civilian. So it's always, you could, they're very unusual. And then when you see one, you nail one. And he usually was, you know, earned, like, like harshly earned. So this guy, we, he, he rolled his chair out in front of the Marines for information and told the, and told them about consequences. Um, what would have been almost certainly an outstanding Marine who at least had one heroic moment, uh, uh, I think the Vietnam war, um, you know, and what had happened to his life as a result of this one massive error in judgment, and look, I can't say for sure that this is what did it, but for my remaining tenure as company commander, not only did we not have any arrest, we didn't have, we had zero liberty incidents, which mm-hmm. is a bit, which is a big deal for the rest of my tenure. And I, re- I just, you're responsible for everything your organization does or fails to do. Even that yeah. is, I, I just don't think most people can get their heads around what that kind of ownership for their work. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, a decade ago, I never would have put these two things together, but increasingly they do come together, uh, which is 
our world of improvisation and the kind of training that happens in, um, you, you know, that, that uh, in armies. And, and, and Daniel Coyle talks about this in his book where he's comparing Navy SEAL training to improv training. We had Ori Brothman on who's worked with uh, Martin Dempsey and, and, and doing training. He has a whole thing at, at Berkeley and improv. And I guess it isn't surprising when you think about the need to have a culture in which you're facing great unknowns and you're completely reliant on each other because you're all making it up as you go along. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so you're like, oh, okay, that makes that makes perfect sense. So there's a, this definitely this kind of kinship. And then what you're talking about with this particular story, too, is the level of ownership that you want everyone to have. Um, and we often talk here about leadership at every level that in some in some effects, probably everyone in your organization leads at certain times. And, and we don't, but we don't think like that. And we certainly don't talk like that. Um, and we'll send someone away for maybe, you know, an online course or, or something. And then, then they call it a day. And, and the other, I think a, a really important idea here is the ability to grow and change. So, you know, you being able to like, yeah, of course you're defensive at first, but then being able to be like, stop, what, what, what is in this moment that I can grow from? Uh, because that, that's the lifelong process. Yeah. Yeah. It's well. So by the way, just for fun, <clears throat> I think there's even an underlying structure that this kinship of improv and, and what's expected in the military uh, share. Hmm. So there's, um, there's a, something called Boyd cycle or the OODA loop. Um, and basically this guy, Robert Boyd was a Colonel in the air force, I think. And in, in the Korean war, um, the American planes were inferior to the Russian planes that the North North Koreans had. And yet uh, we were shooting down their planes at a ratio of something like eight or nine to one. I'm, I'm getting some of the math wrong a little bit. And so this guy became curious why. And what he realized is that our pilots were executing a decision-making loop much faster than the other pilots. And, and so observe, orient, decide, act, and it's a loop or sometimes called the OODA loop. Observe your surroundings, orient yourself within them. That's a crucially important step. Make a decision and act and when you act, it changes that system. Yeah. And then you repeat. And I feel like every, I, lo- I like, I quite like improv. I've watched it before. I'm not, I, of course, don't have training, so I'm no good at it, but I, but I enjoy it when it's done well. And, and I know that's not the exact structure, uh, right? I mean, I've been, I've seen it, but it's, but it's not, it's not far off, right? No. I mean, yeah. Um, with, and, and so I, I always, um, I don't think a lot of people appreciate the, ambiguity of the battlefield, whether it's in the sky or in the sea or on the, on the land, it doesn't matter. And how much the battle plan that you work so hard to define just hours earlier, you know, Mike, Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. That's right. Uh, the Scottish bard, you know, Murphy's law, like th- this idea that the plan goes out the window, what, you know, no plan survives first contact was a famous military strategist, um, you know, from centuries ago. Um, you know, on and on. And uh, we have to effectively improvise um, in that, in that new, new environment. And, and there's a, there's a structure to doing that well. And even in the, in combat. Yeah. I, I mean, if people didn't understand that previously, I think the last two years have shown them incredibly powerully because um, c- it's, it's, it's really bad. We've just been talking about this in the office in terms of young people and how they're very much struggling right now um, in businesses, in schools and uh, in other places. And I have great sympathy, but also like 
we got to be able to get by, by this thing and, and all work together. And I think also the fact that we have so many generations in the workplace, real hard for people to sort of like understand each other, be empathetic with each other. Um, and, you know, and your book is very like your book is very um, thoughtful with regard. It's both muscular and thoughtful, right? I mean, you're, you're not, not letting anyone off the hook, but at the same time, you're asking for people to um, pay attention, to listen, uh, to understand things like purpose and meaning, and that they are important in terms of our working lives. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, on the listen part, so, which I think maybe you'd categorize on the thoughtful side, um, you know, uh, so, so what's really important in the book is um, we've sort of determined a set of leadership behaviors that drive better employee engagement. And we know through third party and our own first party research that more engaged employees will deliver better results. And the result, the result of every company is not the lead, it's not from the senior people. It's from the employees. The employees are the ones that do the real work. They're the ones we're fighting to attract, develop, and retain. And they are the, 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 the performance of any company is nothing more, nothing less than some of the performance of all the people within it. And the employees are the overwhelming majority of the people. They do the real work, right? So um, one of the things that is, we found interesting was some of these leadership behaviors have much stronger correlation, quantitative, meaning that in a, in a quantitative, we actually looked at the quantitative statistical correlation between some of the leadership behaviors and employee engagement. And um, one that has extremely strong relationship is asking for hard feedback from the people on your team as a manager, asking them for hard feedback. And it turns out that's very hard to get. And so what I did in the book was I teased out a little process to help you have a better shot at having people tell you what's wrong. And that's what you're after. You're not after what's right. You're after what's wrong. And there's a, you repeat this process, which is effectively ask a good question. Listen, you know, don't get mad, get curious, actively listen, repeat back. Um, and then ultimately react well. And what I mean by react well is in an ideal world, actually implement some of the advice you've been, you've been given from your team, but, but you're the manager. So you're responsible for everything the group does or fails to do, which means you need to have discretion on whether to act on those things. But what you can never do is ignore it. You must always respond. You know, a, a thank you is, is, is sometimes helpful, but not if you don't mean it, but at least to say, listen, I heard you. And at this point in time, I can't quite do the thing that you recommended that we do, but I heard you. And but please keep it coming because we're going to find one, you know. Um, Krista Quarles used to be the CEO of OpenTable. Mm-hmm. And she, she had the 5% rule. When you get hard feedback, hunt for 5% that you like and that you can agree with. And that's kind of my prescription. But anyway, if you, if you just sort of rinse, repeat, ask a good question, settle in and listen, and then respond well, meaning nobody gets canned for giving you hard feedback, you know, and show appreciation and actually take action. Eventually, you do that enough, and eventually, it'll happen by itself. This is actually the environment Kim Scott created on the team that I was on that reported to her, um, where she probably regretted it. We gave her so much dissent, you know. But then once we made decisions, we, you know, we all we all stacked hands and, and owned the decisions together. But this activity, Kelly, of listening to your team, actually listening to your team, has one has this like an extremely high correlation with employee engagement. One of the highest of all the tw- of the twelve different manager behaviors we we discussed throughout the book. Um, and think about it. Just now, let's just do the narrative version. Yeah. You know, everyone raise your hand if you want to go to work and not be heard. 
Does everybody who wants that raise your hand? Is, like, hopefully, you know, people listen to this while they're driving, probably. So don't maybe really raise your hand. But, but anyway, I think the answer to that, I think almost nobody wants that. Everybody wants to be heard at work. It's my team too, is what a lot of your employees are thinking. It's not just the manager's team. The managers always say, my team, my team. It's, it's all of their teams. Yeah. And to give people a real say in what we're doing and where we're going and how we're doing it is really powerful. And it, it pulls folks in. In fact, second of the 12 behaviors I cover, second most correlated with employee engagement is this basic idea of asking your team to tell, tell me what's wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very interesting here at Second City because the combination of COVID, the social justice movement, other stuff meant that... Um, we were fairly decimated. I'm one of the very few people left from who've been here for, you know, over 30 years. And we have so, we, we have so many oral traditions and so, so much, um, uh, powerful ways in which we have utilized the, the, the way we create our shows here that, that then we sell into the business world because it's all about being creative and being innovative, but very little that this has been written down. So I was literally just working earlier today on with, with the team on writing down our philosophy around feedback. And one of the great things is when you're writing a show, so we have a two-act show scripted, the third act, which is improvised, and that's where we're writing new material and testing out in the audience. So the audience is telling you in real time whether it's working or not. You're either getting the laugh or you're not. Uh, and then we have tape, and we're able to also go back and sort of figure out what, why it might not work and then redo it again. It's, it's very much a scientific method for creating the show. We always do it in front of audiences. And then we have... Phrases like "take the note." You don't have to agree with the note. You, you don't. You, you don't have to implement the note. You just need to listen, consider it. Uh, if you fight the note in the moment, it, it's going to go bad for everyone. It's going to go bad for the, your, your fellow teammates, what we call ensemble members. Um, and you might have a, a different kind of path. So, so, and then for the person giving the note, have it be rooted in specifics, and don't give any harsh notes in front of other people. Um, and praise is good too. Um, yeah. But all of this has to work. Like you can't just cherry pick one of these things and think it's, it works and it's hard, you know, get being, getting honest feedback, giving honest feedback again, cause you need this care personally thing is real hard. Uh, you got to do the, the work up front. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I love take the note. Um, I really like that is a great little coaching, like good coaching isn't showing everything you know in a moment where it's required. Good coaching is given just the precise, memorable instruction. Take the note is really good. Uh, yeah. I, I wish, I wish, I wish I was on your podcast before I wrote the book because I had to put you in there and credited you or whoever's the right well, person. Yes, someone take the note is, and, it, and it originally said was take the effing note was actually the original <laughs> version of it. <laughs> feels a little bit against the spirit, maybe, but um, yeah. but also, con- but it's how it feels. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, all right. In a moment, we're going to ask for a yes and story, but a couple, you worked at Twitter um, and you worked for our friend of the pod, Dick Costello. Uh, and you tell a really good story. So we had this thing called tea time, right? Can you yeah. tell the story from the book about that? Yeah. About the tea time. Tea time was the company all hands. And um, yeah, I, I was, um, I was, I, I was hired to start and lead one of our businesses and, um, basically, if you think about so the way Twitter made and continues primarily to make money is through advertising. And there's 140 million businesses in the world. The ones most people are familiar with are the Nikes of the world, right? A very large company with a lot of money. 
My job was to go find a bunch of the small companies that you've never heard of and try to get them all to advertise a little bit, right? So Nike, one company, advertised a lot. I was my job and my t- organization's job was to go get the little the little companies and and um and they would each spend a little. And we're in a super tight timeline. We, you know, I was hired. It was nine months until our IPO, and so you know, and and like the the, <laughs> the basic rationale was, well, Google has a long tail small advertiser business and Facebook has one. Therefore we have to have one, you know? And, yep. and then it's like, well, it's like, welcome aboard Russ. And then like they, someone started a stopwatch and we, we did a lot of great things, but there was a period of time where we, we were just having, um, we're having some challenges and, you know, it was, it was an environment where teams were regularly edited, meaning, you know, I, I'd come from Google where that at the time that, you know, terminating employment for performance wasn't a big part of the culture got to Twitter and it was definitely like, I saw it. There was a pretty senior marketing person that lost their job early on in my tenure. And I grabbed my boss and said, yo, what, what happened? He said, live rounds are us, you know, and he'd been at Google. So he understood the context. So we got an IPO coming, the company operated at a, at a pretty breakneck pace anyway. You know um, if you don't perform uh, you know, you'll, there's a chance you'll lose your job. Right? There's a lot, lot going on. And so um, there was a, a, a moment in time where I just didn't do a good enough job working across the functions. I didn't directly manage lots of the groups that I was dependent on for us to get the job done. And it just wasn't going well. Um, and, and, I, and even though I didn't directly manage them, the reality is I was the most senior person and it was my job to fix it, to, to, to get that all working properly. Um, and so I kind of blew it. And I guess for a period of time there, um, I um, was acting in a way that I, 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 I would never use these words in life, but I guess I was acting in a way that made people feel like I was saying, even though I, without using the words, like I am in charge here. Yeah. And I, and I promise you, if you ever have to say those words, you're, you're not in charge. Right. And I, I know this better now. I mean, we didn't even say those words in the Marines, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you have to say those words in the Marines, you are not the person, somebody else, I don't know who it is, but it's not you. And so I'm going through this and, and I, and, and we're having, it's a rough, we're having a rough time cross-functional, working across the functions, especially. My direct reports feel it. I feel it. Probably the other people in the other functions feel it. And so anyway, we go to tea time for our all hands. And I was really well-produced meeting, always real buttoned up. And Dick's, Dick was born to, he was born to lead that meeting. You know, he's born, to, he's great at many things. He was born to lead that meeting. And at the end of the meeting, like with 90 seconds left, he says to the whole company, he says, um, and listen, I just want to say one thing. I've been hearing some stories from around the company of people act, of people manifesting an I'm in charge kind of attitude. He said, I just want to say that's just not how we do things here. And it probably wasn't only me. You know, maybe it was happening in a few other places, but he and I had a relationship. He, he, I mean, he was the first person I met when I went to interview at Twitter. And um, he was very good to me and, and um you know, and I always felt like I had his back and he knew I was someone he could come to and ask and get, you know, I would shoot straight every time. And so he would do that, you know, he'd seek me out. And so I don't want to misrepresent. And so that made it even easier for me to believe this comment was maybe a little bit more for me than anyone else. And I, I said in the book, I had this reverse where's Waldo moment, you know, like yeah. I'm standing there in my stupid uh, red and white striped shirt, my red and white striped hat. And that comment just floated on by and landed directly on my shoulders. And, yeah, it was a real gut punch, but you know what? You know what I did, Kelly? I took the note. 
Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I turned right around and said, I have to, I have to lead this weird group. I have to lead it better. And so, yeah, that's Dick, Dick. He had a pretty big impact in that moment, whether he even remembers it or not. Oh, I love it. Oh, we could talk about so much, but we've got to wrap up. So I'm wondering if you have a yes and story for us. I do. I do. Little, I'm going to take a little poetic license. Um, it actually touches on a few things we've already talked about. So go back maybe, I don't know, six years. And I was working with Kim Scott, the author of Radical Candor, friend of the pod. Yep. And um, she was getting Radical Candor to the finish line. And there's six pages in Radical Candor that are about something called career conversations, mm-hmm. right? And it's a model I invented. I created it over the years, tested it. And it's pretty good. Like part four of my book is like a hundred pages, just to give you an idea of how. And so um, I started to realize that this was probably going to be a very valuable section of the book. And I became nervous that by including it in radical candor, I might lose an opportunity to do my own thing. Hmm. And so um, I started to have this realization though a little too late. Right. And Kim and I, we see each other, we're seeing each other every day because we're working together. We founded Candor Inc. together, you know. And um, and I started to do this hand wringing. And I finally said, Kim, I really, I really want to talk to the publisher about this because I'm I'm getting nervous that I'm gonna lose control of this intellectual property. Um and so they all got on a call. It was like, I don't even know who it was. Uh I, I'm working with very probably the same people right now, but I don't remember who was on the call. And it was assurance after assurance. And basically, I really wanted a shot to write my own book. Yeah. And I thought career conversations was the key hook. And, um, and so everybody assured me, we'll, we'll give it a shot. Don't worry. We just, we can't change. We don't want to change this. And, um, you know, they were up against the deadline. I get it now. You know, that would have been really painful. Mm-hmm. And so I said, yeah, go ahead and include it. So first, this is the first yes. Yes. Um, but the story continues on into a little, like the story is really about from maybe to yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so afterward, uh, to keep a commitment, the editor of Kim's book, his name's Tim, um, met with me. And I kind of pitched him on the book. I showed him some things I'd written. And, you know, he, he said it much nicer than I'm going to say it here. But he said, you don't have a book. It's not a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was pretty disheartened. Yeah. And, you know, I was disheartened. It, it was not only getting told I don't have a book. You know, I, I really thought I did. But because there were sort of soft commitments made in that meeting before that led me to believe it was safe to include. And what you, you might've thought was had happened was a little bait and switch. Yeah. Right. You might've thought that in that moment. And in fact, that's what I did think I was wrong. I was incorrect. And so I sort of flushed the idea, maybe even the dream of, of writing a book that would be useful to managers. And that's really, that's all, that's all this book is Kelly. If you ask me what it really is, I just want it to be useful. I want people dog earing it and highlighting it. And so anyway, um, Tim said, you know, he thought there was a soul of a book there, but not, but not a book. And he said, Hey, if you figure it out, make sure I'm your first call. And you can imagine at that moment, I was actually a little pissed. Yeah. And, and it was like, I was, I was thinking last call more like it, you know? (laughs) And so that's a bad way to go through life. And I know it. And it was just the emotion of the moment. Anyway, fast forward, I, I did my time with Kim. I actually developed the core theory of the book that this big three that, you know, direction, coaching, career mattered and had, had been able to test that idea with a thousand people out in the marketplace, just because I always talk to all of our customers first at, at Candor Inc. And then I was able to quantitatively test these behavior. I realized that the idea was because what people were saying to me was, 
we have an engagement problem related to low manager skill. That's what a thousand people told me. They didn't use those words, but they used different words. And I said, what's the skill gap direction coaching career? Well, then I got to Qualtrics and I had a, a little bit of a sandbox to be able to quantitatively test whether these behavior as a model, select, teach, assess, coach, all this stuff and realized we had something. And so um, I went from no chance. I'm, I'm calling you if I ever have a book and I'm done with this book idea to, oh, maybe there's something there um, to starting to put the ideas down on paper, realizing we actually had something saying to my agent, if we can work with Tim, I'd rather work with Tim over any other publisher. We, we got to check with him because who knows, you know, he didn't like the book in the first place, you know, so this is, and then ultimately when Tim made an offer, we cut off the whole process yeah. um, with all the other publishers and said, let's go. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of no to yes in there, the book itself, working yeah. with St. Martin's and Tim, you know, and all that. And, and, um, and I'm really happy. I'm actually really happy that I got to yes in, in all those cases, because I, you know, I think we, I think together we developed something that's really going to be useful for all managers everywhere. It's interesting. I am in a very similar process. I um, uh, was looking at the follow-up to Yes And, my book, and I, my publisher rejected it and I was devastated. And then I took this beat and I'm like, wait, I know stuff from science and I know from my own, let me read, look at this email. There was an offer and the offer was to meet with me. And by the end of the conversation, she's like, rewrite, rewrite your proposal based on the things you just said to me, send it to me, we'll work on it together. And it's just like, oh my God, we get in our way all the time. If we could just, if we could just get by our judgment brain, our fear brain and our shame brain, we probably do pretty well, most of us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I had this moment along the way where a woman named Dambisa Moyo, who's written several successful books, she's, um, she, she's connect, I'm connected to her through a, through a friend, the guy who found one of the founders of Qualtrics, it's his wife. And he, he'd come out to Qualtrics and he was doing a, um, like a fireside chat for some of our young employees. And she and I were just chatting off to the side. And, um, and I, I told her I was having a hard time. I, I said, I can't even get a real estate agent to call me back, let alone a literary agent. You know, and, and she's, she just sort of laughed at me for thinking that matters. And she said, let me tell you exactly what you need to do. And she just laid out a couple of sim- simple steps, easy, 15 minutes for her, mm-hmm. sharp change in attitude and direction for me. Um, yeah, I was in my own way about what I thought mattered, what I thought was most yeah. important. You know, it's like, write the book, you know, and write it clearly. And then the other things start to fall into place. So yeah, the, the, good, the good book- job. The book is called When They Win, You Win. Being a great manager is simpler than you think. It really is. This is in like my top 10 management books, uh, maybe even top five. Russ Laraway, thanks for coming on the show. Wow. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks a lot for having me. And thanks for that incredible endorsement. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.